And then in your Bible, would you like to turn to Paul's letter to the Romans? Romans and chapter 12. Words will also appear on the screen behind me. So Romans 12, and I'm going to read from the first verse. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ... We who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it's serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it's leadership... Let him govern diligently. If it's showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Paul here is dealing with how we respond to all that God has done for us, all that God has given us. He says, in view of God's mercy, and the mercy of God is something that he has been expounding in the previous 11 chapters over the recent months and years we've looked at that and seen the just the wonder of what God has done in enabling us to be saved. What's our response? Well, Paul says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Again, the theme that's been coming through this morning, giving ourselves totally to God. That's the only response that is reasonable in the light of what God has done for us. In other words, we say, God, all that I am is yours. We give ourselves without reservation to him. And when we do that, Paul says, we then realize that we also belong to God's people. If we've given ourselves to God, we've also come into a relationship with God's people we Each member, he says in verse 5, belongs to all the others. And together, he's saying there, we form the body of Christ. And in that body, we've all got different gifts. And we've been looking at some of those gifts. And this morning, we come to verse 8, partway through the verse, where Paul says, if it's contributing to the needs of others, give generously. All of these gifts reflect something about God. Together, we have different aspects of what God is like, what Jesus Christ is like, and together, we show the world what Jesus is like. So all of these things reflect God. And of course, God is a wonderfully generous God. God gives. You see that all the way through the Bible. Right at the start, he creates the world, And within that world creates a garden. 
And there he puts the first man and the first woman. And it says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, The Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And note this, the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. There is a wonderful garden, a well-stocked garden, and there he puts the man and the woman, and he says to them in verse 16 of that chapter, says, the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden. So there's this well-stocked, luxurious, wonderful place, and there he puts the first couple, and he says, enjoy it. Enjoy it all. So there's one tree they were not to touch, but thousands they could. Well, we don't know how many, but it's a well-stocked garden. He says, it's all there for you. He's a generous God. Later on, as the story unfolds, after many, many years, now the one couple has grown and is now a nation. The nation is in, uh, in slavery in Egypt, and God comes to them and says he's going to set them free. He says, I'm going to bring you to your own land. And he describes it as flowing with milk and honey, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, to us, that can seem a little bit odd. Milk running everywhere and sticky honey. And now he's talking about just, it's, it's luxurious. It's not just basics. It's luxury. And it's all going to be yours. He's a God who gives. And so that's the experience of God's people in the Old Testament. Sometimes they're enjoying the goodness of God. Sometimes they turn away from God and then God generously brings them back and restores them and does good good things for them again. And so in Psalm 103, you get the psalmist saying, Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your sins, heals all your diseases, redeems your life from the pit, and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things. That's God. And that's the testimony of God's people, a wonderfully generous God. But of course, as the story goes on, you then see how God was really generous. Yes, he made a wonderful world for his people to enjoy. He did good things for them. But then, as you come to the New Testament, you read, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He gave the dearest to him so that we, through believing in him, should be saved. The grace, the generosity of God. Free salvation to people who deserve nothing. Free salvation, free forgiveness, free heaven. Everything given by God. We pay for nothing. It's all paid for by him. Jesus said, and the words are in John chapter 10 and verse 10, He's speaking about himself as the shepherd of his people. And he says in John 10, verse 10, he says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. He describes the devil there as just coming to rob people, to take away, to cheat people. He says, I have come to give them life, 
and to the full, plentiful. Again, it's the character of God. He just gives. He's generous. And you see that all through Jesus' life. But one story particularly, I think, illustrates it. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus has been teaching a large crowd. We read that this crowd was very large. There were 5,000 men. It doesn't say how many women and children. So well in excess of 5,000. It says, by this time it was late in the day. His disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place. It's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. We've got, well, 5,000 men, maybe if... There could be about 10,000 people here. I mean, it's a large crowd. It's late. They need something to eat. And the disciples, very responsibly, say, send them off to buy something. Jesus says, you give them something to eat. Well, their brains are racing now. That would take, the NIV says, eight months of a man's wages. That's a paraphrase. The footnote says 200 denarii, as people won't know what a denarii is worth. Well, they've worked it out. Eight months, this is going to cost thousands. They're saying, send them away to buy something. Jesus says, you give them something. Give them something? That would cost thousands, they're saying. So Jesus says, well, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And you can almost feel the scorn in their voice as they come back and say, five and two fish. We can't feed them. Jesus says, give. They're saying, let them buy. He's teaching them something about the character of God. And sadly, it's a lesson that God's people since then have failed to learn. Isn't it sad how many churches always think in terms of, let's charge them something. Let's try and get some money in. We're putting on this event, it will cost. And Jesus said, no, you give to them. Give to them? We can't afford that. That's how the disciples are responding. Eight months of a man's wage. Now Jesus says, you give. God gives. Jesus came and gave. He fed probably about 10,000 people and didn't charge them a penny. And as you look at his whole lifestyle, he never charges people for anything. There's Jesus and 12 disciples, 13 men. That's the team. They go from place to place. They go preaching. They go healing the sick. Did they charge for that? Did they ever say, well, we'll come to your village, but of course it will cost. I mean, there are overheads. Would you like to give to this ministry? No, it's give, give, give. And ultimately, he gives his life as a ransom for many. Always giving, never a charge. That's God. That's the God we serve. And so Paul expresses it. So graphically in Romans chapter 5, he says, for those of us who have received this free gift of salvation, free gift of forgiveness, of right standing with God, he says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 2, 
he says, this grace in which we now stand. What does grace mean? God giving freely. He says, we stand in it. We're at the receiving end of just God blessing and never saying, it'll cost you. No, it's free. Everything's free. So, Paul here in Romans 12 is speaking about how the character of Christ, the the things that we see in Christ are kind of shared out amongst his people so that together we show the world what Jesus is like. And so he comes to this gift of giving. It says here, if, if, contribu- if it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. A, a more word-for-word translation would be something like, if contributing with simplicity. If contributing with single-mindedness or generosity, because to give with single-mindedness means giving generously. And now, as we've seen with these other gifts, if you can remember, because it's quite some weeks since we've been looking at this together, we've seen that all of these gifts apply at one level generally, and at another level, they are specific gifts. So, for example, you can't look at the list there and say, well, there's a gift of showing mercy. That just doesn't happen to be my gift, so I'm never going to show mercy. No, we, we all show mercy. There's a gift of encouraging. You don't say, that's not my gift. I'm never going to encourage anyone. No, we all encourage one another, but it's a specific gift for some. And so we'll all be involved in giving, and it is a specific gift for some. So let's look how it applies to everyone, and then we'll look at how it applies especially as a spiritual gift. God, God's people, if they are born again, and that's what it means to become a Christian, we're born again, we become God's children, and in fact the Bible says God's seed is in us. So if we're born again and God's seed is in us, we're going to be like him. There's going to be a family resemblance. And And so God's people will give. It's a sign of being born again. We read in Acts chapter 2. We reminded this earlier in terms of baptism. And we read, as Peter is preaching, 3,000 people respond. There's this little group of 150 people. They're preaching the gospel. Suddenly 3,000 people are added to them. These 3,000 people are genuinely born again. And so their lives change. And so we read in Acts 2, verse 44, all the believers were together, had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. It doesn't say they were commanded to do it. It says they've repented. They've believed in Jesus. And they're changed. And so it's like instinctively... They just start being generous because they're now children of a father who is incredibly generous. In Acts chapter 4, again, verse, the same, we read the same in, in verse 34. Or verse 32 onwards. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as he had need. God's people 
give. It's a feature of God's people. Now, Paul is saying here, if it's contributing, give generously. Or with simplicity, with single-mindedness. People who give in a single-minded kind of way are not likely to be giving grudgingly. They're not going to be giving because they've got to. They're single-minded about it. They want to give. Now again, not only do many churches always seem to be trying to raise money and charging people for things, many churches teach that you've got to give. And they, they've lifted something out of the Old Testament that's about a very specific situation. They've lifted it right out of the Old Testament and they've applied it today. And what is it that they've lifted? Well, in the Old Testament, you read something about something called tithing, where God's people were told to give a tenth of all their income for the support of one tribe, the Levites. The Levites were one of the the 12 tribes. They were a tribe who had no means of support. They didn't have any land that they could farm. Their role was to serve in the worship of God's people. In the tabernacle, later in the temple. They are set apart for that. How are they going to survive? Well, the other 11 tribes are told to give a tenth of all their income to them. So it's very specific. It's about people set apart to offer sacrifices, to conduct the worship and so on. It's because they don't have any territory of their own. And so all the other tribes are told to tithe to them. All of that's to do with the temple, the tabernacle, sacrifices and so on. All of that has passed away. Jesus has come. He is our sacrifice. He is the means by which we come to God. Tithing is irrelevant. It's to do with an Old Testament system. What the New Testament has to say, well, the New Testament says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, for example, 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 7, each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Tithing was not a matter of you deciding what you wanted to give. You had to give a tenth. You had to. It was compulsion. And if you didn't give it, you were robbing God and there could be judgment. Now, that's all passed away. Now we're in something new. Each each person should give what is decided to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. There is no requirement to give. That's why when, as part of our meeting, we pass the famous blue buckets around, white buckets in Shycliffe, when we pass them around, we always say, if you've come prepared to give, and if not, pass it on. Why don't we put some pressure on? Why don't we say, God requires a tenth? Because he doesn't. He says, It says here, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Do you know something? If you give reluctantly, it would be far better not to give. Why do I say that? Well, because God sees our hearts. That's why. God isn't looking at the amount we put in. God is looking at the heart. Just imagine 
a terrifying thought. If we could accurately read people's thoughts, I reckon that's terrifying. Just imagine a kind of screen on everyone's shoulder and what they're thinking could be read. Now just imagine how it would be if someone, maybe it's your birthday, and someone gives you a present, and as they give it, you're reading the screen. And they're thinking, I wish I didn't have to do this. <laughs> Can't really afford it, but I know it's expected of me. They're giving it to you, and you read that. What are you going to say to them? Well, you might well say, look, I know you can't afford it. Why don't you keep it? Because you know they don't want to give it. You've just read it on the screen. (laughs) Well, we don't have a screen on our shoulders, and that is fortunate. And I've just had a birthday, and I'm sure everyone who gave me a present really wanted to. So thank you very much. But God reads reads our hearts. And when that bucket comes by, and if we put something in and we're thinking, you know, we're, we're maybe not actively thinking resentment, but we're only doing it because we think we have to. That, that's not worship. And in fact, it's probably a bit of an insult to God, which is why I say it's better not to do it. Now, the blue buckets have gone around and they've gone downstairs and they're locked away now. If they were still here, I'd say, if you put anything in this morning and really you only did it because you thought of it, it was expected of you, please come and take it back. Now, it's gone, so I can't say that. But, not reluctantly or under compulsion, God loves a cheerful giver. Why does God love a cheerful giver? Because he needs the money? No, he doesn't need the money. Because he happens to own everything. But the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Why does God love a cheerful giver? Because he sees someone who's born again who's reflecting his heart. Because God is a cheerful giver. Because God loves to give. And when we share his heart, he sees, ah, the genuine. This is the real article. And someone who's got, well, I've calculated a tenth. Do I have to round it up or round it down? There's the tenth. I've got to do it. And if I don't give it, I believe there'll be judgment. Ah, It's an insult. It's hideous. Don't do it. Each man should give what is decided in his heart to give. Not reluctantly, under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. If contributing with single-mindedness, not grudgingly, and not to gain anything. No mixed motives, single-mindedness. When we're not, we're not trying to buy anything from God, and we're not trying to earn people's admiration. Do you remember what Jesus said? It's uh, in Matthew chapter six. He said it very graphically, Matthew six and verse two. He says, "When you give to the needy." Don't announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I mean, what a crazy thought, blowing a trumpet to draw attention to how much you're giving. But that's what Jesus says, don't do it. He says, they do it to be honored by men, and I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. What's the reward? They're honored by men. Jesus says, when you give... Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. 
Now, don't let, let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. It's not literally, but what he's saying is, when you give, don't sort of make sure everyone can see. No, hide it. Why? Because you're not trying to be honored by people. This is strictly between you and God. No mixed motives, no drawing attention to yourself is between you and God. Now, it's, it's not a law that it's got to be anonymous, but actually, giving anonymously is really the safest way to give because you can't buy any gratitude, admiration, or honor. It's anonymous. Which is why, actually, when those buckets go round, uh, some gifts go in from time to time that are to be passed on to someone else. People are giving anonymously. No one knows who gave it. People are receiving in. They thank God. God sees what you've done, and it's in secret. It's the safest way. Not a law, not an absolute requirement, but nonetheless, you see the point. It's giving single-mindedly. And if we give single-mindedly, then we give and there are no strings attached. What do I mean by that? We give and we're giving it away. In other words, I'm taking my hands off. I've given this away and it's no longer my money. So if I, if I give, maybe let's suppose I give uh, what to me is a sizable gift to the church then I'm not going to say, what are you doing with my money? Because it's not my money. Giving it away. Hands off. We read in Acts chapter 4, we, we saw the, the generosity that was there in the early church. And it says, from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them. And what did they do? They brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. In other words, they're saying, over to you guys, we trust you. We trust you to do with it as you see fit. They put it at the apostles' feet. Now, again, I don't want to make a law here, but can I just make a little practical point? Sometimes people give money to the church and they say it is for a specific purpose. Now, that might seem reasonable. Actually, sometimes it can create a problem. Because in a sense, that money has not been given away. There's still a kind of string attached. It's got to be used for X, Y, or Z. Now, what if, for whatever reason, X, Y, or Z is not a project we're intending to do? What if... There is, there is a project, but what has been given isn't enough for it. That money then sits there quite uselessly because it can't be used for anything else. Legally, it can only be used for that for which it's been designated. It's much better to just put it at the apostles' feet, as it were, to say, no strings attached, with simplicity, I'm just giving it. We could say, I would like it to be used for such and such, if ever. Now, maybe you don't understand what I'm saying, but sometimes, I mean, let's imagine, let's imagine you conceive of some project. You think, you think it would be a great idea if the church bought property, if the church bought a house, a rehabilitation center, 
for recovering bus enthusiasts. You think as an urgent need, you've got a vision for it. You think people really need to be rehabilitated from that sort of thing. And you think, I'm, I'm going to prime the pump, and so you give £500 for that. Now, of course, you can't buy a house with £500. So it sits in the funds. No one else is going to give that. And anyway, the elders are not going to do it. So that money will sit there until Jesus returns because it cannot be used for anything else. It's much better to say, I'm giving it. No strings attached. With simplicity, with single-mindedness, at the, not the apostles' feet, at the elders' feet. You might say, but I don't trust them. Well, then don't give. Obviously, these guys, when they put the money at the apostles' feet, trusted them. You get Barnabas, a Levite, it says he saw some property. Now, he's a man of some status. And he puts the money at the apostles' feet. These, these guys are fishermen and others, and he's a guy with, of property, a, a guy with money and a guy of status. But he trusts them. He knows God has appointed them. Hands it over for them to use as they see fit. If giving with simplicity... And, of course, the translators here say generously. Because if you're giving with single-mindedness, it's a reasonable understanding to say, then you're going to be generous. And generous giving best reflects new birth. Likeness to our Heavenly Father who gives and gives and gives again. That's what it's like. So it's not, how much must I give? It's not, must I give? But rather, because I'm born again, I want to give, and it's, how much can I give? How much, can, how much will God allow me to give? Giving with simplicity. Now, that's something for everyone who is born again. But now Paul here is saying, There's a gift of giving. Now that's where it starts getting exciting. A gift of giving that goes beyond normal giving into something that is frankly supernatural. Because all the gifts are supernatural. And you see an example of it in in the section that we've looked at in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says, I want you to know about the grace God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and extreme poverty, note that, welled up in rich generosity. So here's extremely poor people being extremely generous. How can that be? Well, I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Ah, we're into something supernatural here. People doing what they can't do. They're extremely poor and they're giving beyond their ability to give. How's that? Well, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. Paul is collecting for the poor in Judea. He deliberately misses these people out because he knows they're too poor to give. And they say, hey, don't miss us out. 
They urgently plead, say, we want to give. Note that. Not we must. We want to. God has put something in their hearts that they want to give, and then they give beyond their ability. Supernatural. They're doing the impossible. It's a gift of giving. People with a gift of giving are not limited to their income. People with a gift of giving are not limited to what you can add up. In 2 Corinthians 9, where Paul has said, each man should give what is decided in his heart to give, he goes on to say, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. He says, now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and increase your store of seed, enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. What does all that mean? Well, you'll be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. Made rich in order to be generous. It's like someone with a gift of giving becomes a kind of one-person distribution center. God causes the resources to come in because he knows you're going to bring them out. Made rich so that you can be generous. Not made rich so that you get more and more wealthy, but no, it's a gift of giving. And so God entrusts wealth because he knows you're going to pass it on. That is supernatural and great fun. To be into something that is frankly impossible. Now Jesus, Jesus modeled that, didn't he, with his disciples. He, he taught them that. He showed them it in Mark chapter 6, the story we've looked at. The feeding of, it's called the feeding of the 5,000. I'd say it's more like the feeding of the 10,000. He says to them, you give them something. They're thinking, we can't afford it. Now, many people live on that level. We can't afford it. What we can afford determines what we can do. Many churches operate on that basis. What we can afford determines and limits what we can do. Now, Jesus says, you give them something. They protest how much it will cost. He establishes... They can't do it. Five loaves and two fish. It's ridiculous. Dividing five loaves and two fish among maybe 10,000 people, one crumb for everyone. That's ridiculous. Then notice what happened. Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. All they've got, five loaves and two fish. And now some instruction is being given. People are to sit in small groups. That's creating an expectation in these people that something's about to happen, but there's no resources. Jesus directed them, the disciples, these unbelieving disciples, says, tell all the people sit down in small groups. They sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. So now the people are ready to be fed. And there's no food. And only at that point does the miracle happen. 
In other words, the decision precedes the provision. We're going for it. We haven't anything. That's faith. To act in faith, trusting the provision will follow. It's supernatural. Supernatural. I remember many years ago in the the church we were in previously. um, Do you remember that film ages ago? I think it was a film or something, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Well, I was in a situation where I could say, Honey, I Shrunk the Church. Uh, I had whittled the church down to, I think, about 24 people. Um, And uh, I will tell you the secrets of my success sometime. Um, We had about 24 people, and among them, um, there were, I think, 10 wage earners. And there was a redundant school building in the village that I passed every day, and uh, it was getting vandalized, the windows all broken, holes in the roof, and I thought, that would be great. For the church, we already had a chapel that was already too big for us because we only had 24 people. Anyway, I cut a long story short, um, got involved in discussions with the local council as to whether or not we could buy it, and they didn't really want to sell it to us. Um, so they said, "Well, show us your accounts to demonstrate you can afford this." And so we showed them the accounts to demonstrate we had no money at all, and. Uh, <laughs> They said to us, yeah, well, okay, but what are your fundraising proposals? You, you launch an appeal. Oh, no, no, no. And they were horrified. Well, of course you launch an appeal. That's what churches do. We said, no, we are here to give to the community, not take from them. Jesus said, you give to them. Don't charge them. They couldn't understand that. They said, well, where's the money coming from? I said, well, you're not going to like this one, but the answer is God. Well, they didn't like it, but that got reported back to the council and the local press put it on the front page of the paper. God will provide. That was the story that that week in the paper. Well, we are now publicly committed to buying a building when we've got no money and only 10 people who earn a wage and none of them earned much. I think we had about one who earned a decent wage. Publicly committed. The decision precedes the provision. Jesus said, have them all sit down. All right, now they're expecting something. There isn't any food. Well, then the miracles happen. And just to complete that story, um, we actually were ready to complete on the purchase of that building before the lawyers had got all the documents done. I don't know how it happened. I really don't know how it happened because we didn't have any money. And similarly with this building. Uh, Well, the stories can go on. God is able, God is able, it says, to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous. Some people have a gift of giving where they are living in God's supernatural provision, where God is somehow bringing resources to them because he trusts them to pass them on. I've known people like that. I've been in the blessing of knowing people like that. It's amazing. How did that happen? How did that happen? When you want to give, when you want to give, 
God is very ready to let you. And God is very ready to supply beyond your wildest dreams so that you can give. A gift of giving. Jesus taught it to the disciples when he fed the 10,000. Churches are here to be a clearinghouse, as it were, a distribution center for heaven's resources. Because in the church, there will be people who have got that gift. And the resources flow. No one's getting any honor for it except God. It's all anonymous. No one is drawing attention. No one's blowing a trumpet. No one's saying, look how much I, God has enabled me to give. No, 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 no. It's in secret. It's quiet. Because it's for God. But that's one of the gifts that God gives to his people. The, the joy of sharing in the character of God because God is so amazingly generous. God loves to give. Not grudgingly, not because I've got to. Again, I would say, if you're one of those sad people, and I say that intentionally, if you're one of those sad people that you give because you think you ought to, please stop doing it. Please don't do it. If you've, if you've signed a standing order or something, cancel it. Please, please don't give because you think you've got to. Because it dishonors God. And God, God doesn't need your money. God doesn't need what we give. As I've said, He owns everything. It's all His. But giving is a privilege. They earnestly, urgently pleaded with us, Paul said, for this privilege of giving. Now God allows us to give. If for you it's not like that, then can I suggest stop giving, please. Go back to verse 1 of chapter 12 and start again. (laughs) And read what it says there. I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Well, if you go back to verse 1, you're going to say, what does it mean, God's mercy? Well, then look at the previous verses. From him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? Just see what God is like. See what his mercy is. See what Jesus has done for us. What happened at the cross. How salvation is free. See all that. And then as you say, oh God, how can I respond? He will say, by giving everything. Offer your body. My life, oh God, is yours. Everything is yours. Well then, what we give financially just is a small part of that. It's, Lord, it's all yours. It really is. And I want to give. I really want to give. Go back to verse 1. Work through. And if the whole thing, you think, well, actually... You're listening to all I'm saying. You're saying, well, in spite of him saying you don't have to, actually, this is just a veiled appeal for money. Can I assure you, it isn't. It really isn't. Do you know something? Now, one of the dangers of the way I preach is that I don't prepare it all. And so on the spur of the moment, I can say things that I later regret. And on the spur of the moment, I'll just say this one. If you all 
stopped giving. It would be sad in terms of your relationship with God, but not sad in terms of the program of the church. Ginny, the treasurer, is making a note of what I'm saying. <laughs> if everyone... Just when, when I first came to Sheffield, I came to the church that preceded this one, a church that didn't really give. That's what I was told when I arrived and didn't really pray, and certainly through things that had happened, didn't trust leaders. And I came here knowing that God wanted us to go for this building, and so a million-pound project from a church that didn't give. And so what I said to the church, because I realized they need to know the grace of God, I said, you don't have to give anything. There'll be no appeals for money. We're not going to keep, we're not going to have any gift days. We're not going to make a big thing of it. And if you don't give anything, that's fine. You'll be very welcome in the building when we get it. And no one will ever know anyway. So you don't have to give. That was what I said. For, and we're going for a million pound building. Well, we're in that building. So I can say now, this is not a veiled appeal for money. And if you take it as that, cancel your giving. And if everyone stopped giving, well, how would we survive? Well, how did Jesus feed 10,000 people? Not by people giving, but actually miracles. God is able to make all grace abound. God doesn't need my money. He doesn't need yours. But God is amazingly generous. When we know him, we actually will want to give. And if you don't want to give, do you know him? Do you know him? Has he moved your heart? Has he stirred you? Has he changed you? Do you know that you know him? So actually this whole thing, you think, oh God, God, I'm not living under law of what I must do. I'm standing in grace. And that grace has changed me and God has opened me up to miracles. It's opened me up to the supernatural. And oh God, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Here I am, Lord. It's unreservedly yours. That's the response. A generous father gives birth to generous offspring. It's the sign of being born again. Law produces resentment, a mindset of just enough. Grace is about liberality, great joy, and fun. Don't you think it must have been fun getting 10,000 people sitting down in groups expecting to be fed and there isn't any food? (laughs) Don't you think that's kind of fun? Oh, I guess the disciples felt a bit nervous, but Jesus knew what was going to happen. What a laugh. Five loaves and two fish. That's all there is. And there are all these people sitting in groups. I don't know if they've all said grace, <laughs> but they're all ready to eat. And there's no food. It's hilarious. It's hilarious to get into something, going for a million-pound project when you haven't any money. It really is hilarious. A bit worrying. <laughs> but to see God's provision and to be living in miracles like that, God loves a cheerful giver, a hilarious giver, knowing the resources of God. 
everyone can enjoy giving. Some will see miracles. All need release from fear and release from legalism in this matter to actually believe God, trust God, and start moving in God. Let's pray.